0: Welcome to Reviving Growth Keynesianism, a podcast about economic thought from the mid 20th century and why it matters to us today. Our goal is to fan the flames of a growing conversation on inequality, growth, and aggregate demand, so that we may hopefully arrive at a place of better well being for all. Hi, I'm your co host, Nick Johnson, and I'm coming to you today from the University of Chicago's Center for Spatial Data
1: Science. My name is Chris Hong. I'm a PhD student at the University of Chicago Department of
2: History, and I'm an intern at the Center for Spatial Data Science. And I'm your co-host, Robert Manduca, coming to you from the Department of Sociology at the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us.
3: All right, so today we're, uh, we're doing a solo episode, just uh, me, Robert, and Chris. And uh, we're talking today to Robert about his research uh, on inequality and social processes that generate it and distribute it.
2: Yes. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome.
3: <laughs> so maybe we should take your, your papers um, in chronological order. Uh, and and the first one that you sent us uh, in preparation for this episode was one with uh, Raj Shetty at Harvard and a, a few other co-authors. Uh, and in it, you document declining intergenerational mobility. Can you just tell us how you got involved with this project and, and what you see as some of the stakes being?
2: Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is a paper from a couple of years ago. We're studying uh, what sociologists and economists would call absolute income mobility. So that's basically in inflation-adjusted dollar terms. You know, do children grow up to to have higher incomes than their parents do? Um, and so that's distinct from what a lot of a lot of scholars actually probably more more of the research on mobility in social sciences on is on relative mobility, which is basically looking at sort of how much. Uh, movement up and down the the rank distribution. So, like, do, basically, do people who are born to parents at the bottom of the distribution what's their likelihood of ending up at the top, um, and vice versa? And sort of how much fluidity or mixing is there um, across generations? Um, and that's related to but distinct from mobility in absolute terms, where it's just like literally, you know, compare your dollar income to your parents after adjusting for inflation, and just yes, no, like, did you outearn them? Did you grow up to move up in absolute terms?
0: So theoretically, you could have a lot of intergenerational mobility and precisely zero relative mobility, right? If the rank ordering just stays the same from one generation to another, but everyone's getting richer.
2: Exactly, exactly. Okay. And and there's a couple interesting pieces of that, right? Like, uh, So that means absolute mobility is not zero sum, right? Everybody can move up. Um, and that's not true in relative terms, right? Because if you move up in rank, somebody else has to move down. Um, and actually, there's been some interesting more sort of theoretical work since since this paper came out, uh, looking at the mathematical relationships between the two. And they, they one of the findings is actually that uh, conditional on the marginal income distributions, absolute mobility and relative mobility are actually inversely correlated. Um, hmm. so, so That's like, really would, interesting. Yeah, you would actually have more overall absolute mobility if everyone stayed in exactly the same place hmm. in relative terms, um, just because there would be no one sort of moving down in rank um, enough to counteract the upward mobility in dollars. So
1: would it be fair to say, I guess, what's characterized uh, the U.S. in the past few decades would be a kind of constant relative mobility, but a, a stark downward movement in terms of absolute mobility.
2: Yeah, I think that's about right. There's been different um, attempts to to study relative mobility over time, and people debate a little bit, but a lot of the the general findings are that it's been fairly stable, at least. In sort of the last chunk of the twentieth century, um, but yeah, but what we show in this paper is that if you look in absolute terms, so you know, just are people out earning their parents, there's been a really stark drop. Um, specifically, starting for cohorts born sort of in the in the middle of the twentieth century, the rates of upward mobility were super high. They were like eighty or ninety percent, literally ninety percent for the for the nineteen forty cohort, um, and that declined pretty steadily over the next uh, few decades to the point where people who were born in the in the 1980s, um, like me uh, have about a fifty percent chance of um, of out earning their parents as 30 as year olds.
3: Can you, can you give us a little bit of insight into how that happened?
2: Yeah. Um, so so yeah, right what's what's going on? Why do we see this big decline? And there's you know this is a whatever a, a major question that people have different opinions on and there's sort of different levels of you know how how far up the causal chain do you want to go. Um, but one thing that we do, we did in this project, was basically try to distinguish between two sort of pretty general possibilities of what might be driving the decline. And you can think there's sort of yeah, there's these there's these two options. So on the one hand, you can imagine that maybe what's going on is that the mid 20th century was this economic boom. You know, economic growth was really high. It's much it was much higher then than it has been in recent decades. And so maybe what was going on back then is just the economy is growing so fast that it pulled you know the entire um, birth cohorts from that era sort of above their parents' incomes. And this was fundamentally about fast economic growth in the, um, you know, 40s and 50s and 60s and slower economic growth since then. Um, on the other hand, you can imagine, you know, another thing that was different about the, the mid-century versus today, as, as we know on this podcast, is that the income distribution was really different too, right? So back then, it wasn't just that the economy was growing faster, it was that it was much more broadly distributed. And so, you know, lots of people were taking part in that growth. Um, and that's been much less true um, of, over the last few decades. And, you know, today, uh, the the economic growth of the of the, you know, since the 1980s has gone very disproportionately to the very top of the distribution. Um, and so that means that, you know, the economic growth that we do have isn't really translating into upward mobility for, for lots of people in the way that it, it might if it were distributed um, differently. Um, so
3: slower, so so slower growth and increasing inequality is are the two reasons why we mm-hmm. see less absolute mobility, why people aren't out earning their parents. Do you get a do you have a sense of like um uh, the relative importance of these two factors?
2: Yeah, yes, we do actually. <laughs> uh, so one thing we do basically in the paper what we did is we ran these like hypothetical simulations where we say you know let's imagine that take the 1980 cohort, you know, in, in reality, they had about a 50% chance of out-earning their, their parents. Um, let's imagine that they had grown up and experienced the growth rates that the 1940 cohort experienced. So much faster, you know, I think about one percentage points per year. So we say, you know, imagine since 1980, the economy's grown at about 1.5% um, a year in real terms, uh, between 1940 and 1970, it grew at about two per, two 2.5%. Um, so let's imagine that the 1980 cohort grew up and experienced a 2.5% growth rate for their entire, you know, uh, entire childhood and young adulthood from zero to age 30. But let's imagine that we still had the the amount of inequality that we have in real life today. Um, so it was high inequality, but, but also higher growth. What would their uh, upward mobility be in that hypothetical situation? Uh, and when we do that, we find that, you know, whereas in reality, they had an upward mobility rate of about 50 percent, if they had had the faster growth, but still the high levels of inequality, they would have had an upward mobility rate of about 62 percent. So, you know, so not higher, that much of a not that much of a bump. Right. Yeah, it's it's definitely an improvement, but it's um, uh, but it's nowhere near still the 1940 cohort. Um, and, you know, that a difference of between a 1.5% growth rate and 2.5% growth rate over 30 years is an enormous amount of economic activity, right? I don't, I'm not sure if we gave the number, but, you know, we're talking like trillions of extra dollars of GDP. And then the other, you know, the counter, the, the other possibility, the other counterfactual that we do is say, okay, let's imagine the opposite, right? Let's imagine that they had the economic growth rate that they did in real life about 1.5%, not as fast as the mid 20th century, but let's imagine that they're that, that growth was distributed or that that the income distribution was similar to that in or exactly the same as that in uh in 1970 when the 19 that the 1940 cohort had at age 30 um and if we if we imagine that hypothetical scenario we see that that actually would increase their upward mobility rate to about 80%. So closing about 2 thirds of the gap
3: which is mm-hmm. almost the exact same as, as what it was for people born in 1940
2: which was 90%. Yeah, so it's you know it's not all the way to 90% but it's getting pretty close on this case, you know, much, much closer than than the economic growth would do. And again, that's imagining we have our current GDP just distributed differently or distributed like it was in the past.
3: I see. So clearly distribution matters much more than actual uh, aggregate growth. And if you're like us and you believe that these two factors are also <laughs> causally related,
2: right? <laughs> and, and
3: that a more equal distribution of income would have also got us to faster growth. Can, can you just add them together and say, OK, plus 30 percent, plus 12% uh that gets you back up to the 90% uh absolute mobility standard or can you not add them like this
2: um i don't know you can't like exactly add them you could you could do a different simulation where you're saying let's imagine both of them at the same time um and it would it would give you sort of a combination approach um but yeah but i mean like you say and like we we've talked about before on this podcast i i certainly think that if we had a more equitable distribution today we would also be seeing faster rates of economic growth and so it probably would have would be even higher, um, even higher there. I should note that in in the United States case, um, it's very much the case that uh, growing inequality as opposed to slower economic growth is the main driver. The other researchers that I haven't been part of have have studied some other countries around the world, and they think it's it depends on the country, basically, whether it's more about growth or more about inequality.
1: On that note, should we maybe <laughs> move on to uh, the 2020 paper, which is, I think, applying the same sort of structural analysis, but to a comparison between U.S. and other uh, similar advanced economies. Um, So I guess just to kind of continue on what you just said, uh, why why is the, I guess, relationship between aggregate growth versus distribution within that uh, amount of growth uh, different uh, between the U.S. and perhaps uh Scandinavian countries or something like that
2: yeah I mean I think one reason that these these other researchers have found that the sort of relative importance is different in different places is that you know the United States um has had you know has a relatively large economy compared to other high-income countries right it has high high GDP and it's even had sort of you know fairly high GDP growth compared to peer economies um but we also have much more inequality than most of our most other high-income nations and so you know in those circumstances right it makes sense that inequality would be sort of the main mover whereas other other countries might have more equitable distributions and slower rates of economic growth and there it may be that the the growth rate is what's um what's more important but so yeah what we've what we did in the second paper basically is say okay we saw this really striking decline in upward mobility in the united states um you know we also know that the us is sort of you know, sort of different from other, um, other high income countries and, you know, in all sorts of ways, we have, um, you know, as we've talked about before, we have a different sort of welfare state approach, we have much higher rates of levels of inequality, Um, you know, it, it, you can imagine that maybe it's the case that the United States is actually somewhat unique in this decline, or maybe it's not right. Um, uh, And so what we what we're trying to do in the second paper is basically Establish the extent, evaluate the extent to which the U.S. is unusual, or just see what what trends in absolute mobility rates look like in other countries. Um, and so, this has been a really big and really fun, um, uh, huge collaborative process where basically we we did a bunch of cold emailing of anyone who had ever written a paper about relative mobility in a country that seemed to have high quality data. So we're talking oftentimes mm-hmm. like tax data, wherever possible. It's yeah, it's micro data based on administrative records. So a lot of especially scandinavian countries have have really impressive register data sets where they have sort of like most of the time most times that people interact with the state that sort of is all compiled into one um data set so you have like the tax records you know um address information you know marriage that sort of thing and so um so that kind of data really makes it possible to study things like um intergenerational mobility because we know you know we have kids we know who Who's whose parents of which children, you know, kids are linked to their parents and we know um, the incomes of parents uh, long ago and we know the incomes of kids today. Um, And so you can you can make these sort of comparisons um, very straightforwardly. Uh, In the US, we don't actually have that kind of data readily available. So we had to do sort of a different approach, which is basically to to construct a a transition matrix from parents to children in rank terms. So saying, you know, children from the who whose parents were at the tenth percentile on average grew to grew up to be at the twentieth percentile or something like that. Um, and we could we made that for one particular or a couple of particular cohorts uh, towards the end of our sample period and then we sort of projected projected that back by using that same transition matrix but applying the marginal income distribution so the income distribution of parents on the one hand and of children on the other hand uh, from earlier periods and by combining those two different data sources we could make statements about the overall average rate of upward mobility, even though we don't know the upward mobility of any particular child um, in most cases.
0: What were the other major countries of comparison in your study?
2: Um, yeah. So basically, we, we, we tried to get as many as we could, but we ended up with eight. So the United States, um, uh, which we had, had already looked at, then we were, we were also looking at Canada, um, we're looking at the UK and the Netherlands, and then uh, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Denmark, so Scandinavian countries. Um, so yeah, so we have these eight countries, um, and we're able to do different amounts of of time for for each one based on basically when they created their their data system. Um, so unfortunately, we're not able to go all the way back to the 1940 cohort like we were in the United States, um, but we can we basically can start with cohorts born in the early to mid 60s in most in most of the countries.
1: So you kind of group these countries into low versus high uh, mobility. So Canada, Denmark, and the U.S. would be kind of cases of low mobility, uh, whereas a country like Norway, um, I think you right had the highest uh, rate of upward mobility. What did you guys conclude out of um, maybe, I guess, comparing the U.S. to other the other lower mobility countries like Canada or Norway versus um the high mobility countries. I'm 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 guessing that it has to do with a combination of uh, kind of absolute growth rates versus the the income distribution.
2: Yeah. So uh, so when we do this comparison, uh, you know, what do we, what do you actually see if you look at absolute mobility rates in in these different countries? Um, and what we find is that, you know, as you were describing, there's sort of a different, a couple of different groups. So the U.S. is actually sort of relatively low, but it's not uniquely um, uniquely low. So we were actually pretty surprised that Canada was was almost exactly uh, comparable to the United States, because um, I think a lot of people in the U.S. sort of look to Canada as like a, you know, more more successful or better better um, operating country or something like that. But in this in this case, they were um, their upward mobility rates for at least for the the few cohorts that we have good data. Um, Uh, aren't particularly uh, all that much higher than the United States, Uh, but a lot of European countries do see much much higher and much more sort of sustained high levels of upward mobility. So Norway, for instance, um, yeah, they they have maintained an upward mobility rate of about 75% um, all the way back, you know, starting in the cohorts born in the 1960s, which are the earliest ones in our sample, all the way through to those born in the the mid-1980s, whereas the U.S. um, cohorts in that over that time, not only were lower on average, but also saw a decline from about, uh, you know, 65 or 70% to about uh, 55 or so percent. Um, and that's, you know, Norway, a lot of people say, well, Norway, you know, they have oil and they're sort of a special case, but we see pretty similar trends for for Sweden um, and Finland, uh, and also even places like the U.S. And, and, or the sorry, the U.K. and the Netherlands also had very high rates. Um, those two countries, the U.K. and the Netherlands, really saw a big drop. Um, in recent cohorts, that we think is a, a sort of consequence of the global financial crisis. So, starting around 2000, for cohorts whose adult incomes were measured around starting around 2008 or so, we see this pretty steep decline um, in in the UK and Finland, or sorry, in the UK and the Netherlands. Um, and, and we don't really see that in in Norway or, or Finland or, or Sweden either. And then the the really the one that you know I think. Gave us the most pause was uh, was Denmark, which is, you know, on the uh, the Scandinavian country that many people think of as being very similar in terms of institutions to uh, its neighbors to the north. Um, But in terms of absolute mobility, when we look at it in pre tax income, which is our our main measure, because that's what's available in the widest range of countries, we actually see that it's had a, a pretty sharp decline in recent years, particularly since the since the global financial crisis. Um, and for the most recent cohort for the 1982 cohort cohort, the upward mobility rate for Denmark is actually lower than that for the for the United States or Canada. Um, and we think there's basically two things going on here. Um, so on the one hand, uh, it turns out that Denmark was actually hit quite a bit harder than mm-hmm. the rest of Scandinavian by the, Scandinavia by the crisis. Um, so if you look at the like, change in unemployment over the Few years after um, after 2008, it's I think it was about twice as big an impact in Denmark as in um, the rest of Scandinavia.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask about that. How do you filter out business cycle fluctuations, especially if you're taking as your benchmark years the uh, <clears throat> the ends of decades like uh, 1980 or 2010? It seems like those income samples would have uh, really large cyclical components. Do you do robustness checks? Uh, where you like move things backwards and forwards by a couple of years to like see if you get the same results or is that there's that just not possible because of data limitations?
2: Yeah. So this is something where we've been, you know, deb- we've debated among ourselves and, and other people have sort of also uh, <laughs> questioned us about. Um, and basically, we we don't really try to like control for the business cycle or anything like that in our main analysis. Um. Uh, what we do is we we compute versions at other ages. So specifically we look at at um, upward mobility if you measure income at age forty instead of age thirty. Okay. Um, and there we see we basically find evidence that suggests you know as you might expect, that the business cycle is really is quite impactful on absolute mobility um, because you know essentially we see that the you know the cohorts that were forty in nineteen or in, well in nineteen eighty or you know in uh, in two thousand eight um, those cohorts have a big drop for, for mobility when measured at age 40, that's comparable to the drop in mobility at age 30 for the cohorts that were 30 in that, in that year. So it does seem like the business cycle is really impacting things. Um, and so there's a question of, you know, is that, is that a, a sort of measurement error or something that we ought to correct for, or is that sort of signal and like something that actually is meaningfully important about the different economies? And, you know, I think, people go back and forth and I think we, we may end up doing some analysis looking at, you know, maybe you average over five or 10 years of income or something like that. But personally, I definitely come down on the side of like, I think that, you know, business cycles are a product of policy and we shouldn't have them. Uh, and so, you know, that's a that's an important, you know, the fact that the, that Norway didn't get hit by the Great Recession and Denmark did, it means that it's better to live in Norway than Denmark in that case. So like, um, you know, I, I, I tend to think that uh, for the purpose, you know, from a like lived experience point of view, I think, you know, People are just sort of knowing that they're not doing as well as their parents. And uh, I don't know that it's necessarily like a, a valid sort of excuse or that it makes you feel all that much better to know that, oh, it's because of the business cycle that I'm having a you know a less successful um, life than my, my parents did.
0: All right. So maybe we should turn then uh, to your next paper, which is uh, on the way that national trends in income inequality affect uh, some groups in America. And in particular, you're interested in racial inequality. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How uh, how these trends show up in the different lived experiences of different subgroups in America?
2: Yeah, so this is um, in this paper. Paper it's also sort of in some ways, a, 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 I guess, a descendant of the one we were just talking about, and particularly the the exercises that we did in terms of distinguishing between overall growth and the income distribution, and sort of breaking apart uh, the the incomes that are earned at different ranks versus the position of people at you know one rank versus another um and so this is sort of very much building off of that kind of thought exercise and basically um in this paper i'm exploring what it what is going on or like what are some of the con- contributors to the the persistence of the racial income gap between um african americans and and whites in the united states and you know i think people are i think more aware of this now than they they were um several years ago, but the, you know, the, the overall, if you look at like the median incomes of African Americans and whites, and you you compare them, there's been basically, you know, almost exactly zero change over the past 50 years, right, there's been hardly, like, literally no improvement um, since, since 1968, when the, when the current population started asking people about their, their incomes. Um, And that's you know i think maybe not entirely surprising to a lot of people but it is quite striking um given you know all of the given the civil rights movement and given the laws that were passed in in light of that um and also given uh that we have seen somewhat you know some amount of closing of the gaps in other uh, in other spheres, right? So if you look at educational attainment, there's actually has been, you know, nowhere near a complete narrowing, but a, a a marginal narrowing of the of the gap in terms of you know the percentage of people who have a college education or 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 high school, you know, different types of educational measures. Um, similarly, if you look at things that we think of as maybe being uh, consequences in part of of income, like life expectancy or something like that, there has actually been a narrowing of the gap. Um, and so the question is, you know, why why has there been actually zero uh zero change at all in median income or median family income is w- is what I'm looking at specifically and so what this paper does is basically explores uh it it does sort of a decomposition and looks at two you know two possible um uh drivers or 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 contributors to the to the overall income gap. so, so
3: uh, mm-hmm. actually before we get on to that yeah uh, I just wanted to ask what what's some alternative theories of of this um constant ratio of yeah. black to white uh income were because because I imagine that people have have tried to explain this before, right,
2: yeah, yeah, no, definitely, and there's a lot of I wouldn't even necessarily call them alternatives, but just like other th- things that that could be, and in fact we know for a fact are definitely going on, right, so a lot of times when people have studied this the racial income gap uh they've they've identified and very thoroughly documented processes of what sociologists would call racial stratification, so basically things that social processes that sort. Um, African Americans into lower-paying jobs or lower-paying paying occupations than uh, than whites. Um, so you can think of, you know, the most uh, straightforward maybe is just like pure racial discrimination, right? Like people don't get hired based on the color of their skin, and that's you know that's been very very definitively shown through audit studies where you send you know either identical resumes or actually um, you actually hire people to go uh, go and pretend to apply for jobs. And you see, you know, they, they present identically, except for, uh, except for their race. And when you do that, these experiments show that the the black applicants are, are less likely to be called back than the white applicants. Um, and so, there, you know, this is, again, this is not, like I say, it's not really an alternative. It's just like another thing that is definitely going on um, in addition. Uh, and similarly, um, you know, you can also, people have also talked about what economists would call like pre pre market or pre labor market factors, so things like differential access to education and you know we know that uh, that African American children don't have access to on average at least to to as high quality of schooling as as white um, white children do so that sort of stuff um, and so these are all these are all things you know on the one hand they've very definitely been documented right um you know there's been very clear evidence of them um but they operate through this process of sort of the the end result of these types of processes would be that if you look at income ranks, that they they would end up with African Americans being in lower income ranks um, on average, or or than than whites. Um, so they sort of operate through. You can think of it as like a sort of sorting process of you know when you're assigning when people are sort of matched to places in the income distribution. The consequence of racial discrimination would be that um, that black job applicants are are sort of assigned to lower ranks in the distribution than white ones. Um, so the, yeah, so these are again, they're they're definitely processes that are out there and that are going on, um, but you would expect them to show up. Basically, you would you would expect them to show up as continued differences in in income rank, um, or a sort of steady or widening, maybe even of the of the income rank gap.
0: But what we've actually seen is a partial, uh, incomplete, but but real uh, closing uh, of the rank gap between whites and blacks in America, right?
2: Exactly. Yeah. So that's one, um, one thing that I, I show in this paper is that uh, if you actually look at the income, the gap in terms of income rank. So you look at the, the rank of the median African-American family in the in the national income distribution, it actually has gone up, you know, not a huge amount, not as much as it ought to have had of have gone Um, But, uh, uh, but, but it's closed, the the rank gap has closed by about a third more or less. So there's uh, the the median African American family was at the 25th percentile of the income distribution in 1968. um, And in 20 what is it? 2013, I think, is my last year of data. They were at the 35th percentile. So, you know, again, they should be at the 50th percentile. That's where we would. Uh, that would be actual equality. But um so but there has it, been a narrowing. That
3: would mean that the average black family is in the middle of the income distribution. So the average matches the average. That would be.
2: If it, it were of, at the 50th, yeah.
3: Rank equal. You know, that that would, be, that would be rank equality.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So so we see you know, and again you know the. The reason perhaps, or, or among the many reasons that there hasn't been, that we haven't gotten to 50 are all the things that we were just talking, right, talking about, right, like continued racial discrimination, continued um, unequal access to education, continued sort of occupational sorting, segregation, all these sorts of things are, are among the factors that are contributing to the lack of complete closure. But nonetheless, there has actually been uh, sort of despite the continuation of all those different things, there, there, um, there has been some progress. Um, uh, and that's, you know, Pretty, you know, and to some extent remarkable, and on to other extent, you know, it's really frustrating that it hasn't been hasn't been greater.
0: So then, if there has been this partial closing of the rank gap between uh, blacks and whites, why hasn't the uh, income ratio between them declined or improved?
2: Right. No, that's that's a that's a great question. Um, and what uh, what's happened essentially is that because of changes to the overall income distribution, specifically the concentration of resources at the top um, and the uh, declining share that's going to people um, in the middle class and, and working class and, and other, other groups of, uh, of Americans, um, this improvement in rank terms, moving sort of crawling up the income ladder, hasn't resulted in an improvement in terms of the incomes that are earned. Um, so if you look at, for example, if you look at the The income that's associated with the 35th percentile, which is where the median black family was in 2013 Uh, in in 1968, when these data start that the 35th percentile that income was about uh, about 70% of the overall national mean. Um, And today, or at the end of the, uh, in 2013, it was, it it had fallen because of rising inequality fallen to be just under 50%. So the, the income that you get for being at the 35th percentile has declined uh, substantially relative to the size of the economy or the, the mean income per capita. And so this means that this, this improvement in rank terms was sort of uh, almost exactly canceled by a, a backsliding due to, due to rising inequality.
1: So it's sort of this effect of uh, pulling away at the top of the income distribution that's kind of generating um, these alterations in the the relative positions of white versus black uh, and nominal groups. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's been a sort of overall stretching and, you know, that's that's most pronounced at the very top, but it also has has been reflected, you know, the growth rates for the 70th percentile were higher than the growth rates for the 50th percentile, which were higher than the growth rates for the 30th percentile. And so there's been this stretching throughout throughout the distribution, um, though it's, you know, by far most pronounced at the very top.
3: One of your um, repeated uh, theoretical touchstones, uh, if you will, is uh, Peter Blau's macro-sociological theory uh, about the interaction of two different kinds of variables, nominal variables, which are sort of discrete names for different social groups men, women, black, white, et cetera, et cetera, and gradient variables, which are continuous numbers like income or wealth or something like this. Um, Can you maybe explain for our listeners um, what what Blau's idea was here and and how you apply it?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So Blau was a a sociologist. He wrote sort of Throughout the mid 20th century into the late 20th century, um, and one of the one of his major among his many major uh, contributions to sociology, actually, um, one of the ones that I'm sort of particularly fond of is this idea of um, this sort of he called it a mac- macro sociological theory of social structure. And basically, um, what he's noticing is that you know people have lots of different. Uh, you know, different identities or different um, characteristics, right? There, you know, people have uh, a gender identity, they have a racial identity, maybe an ethnic identity, uh, an educational identity. There's lots of different different characteristics that um, that one person will simultaneously um, have. Uh, and Blau basically, starting from that premise that just that people have lots of different characteristics, like the same person would can uh, can fall into lots of different. Types of nominal uh, variables and also would have, you know, they would have an income level and education level also sort of these great gradient variables he, he spent, um, he wrote a whole book and he, he wrote some articles where he's basically uh, starting from that point, then doing a, a process of deduction and just sort of uh, thinking through what are all the sort of uh, logically consequential um, uh, theories or claims that you can make based just on knowing the fact that they're, you know, one person will have will be in, in several different groups simultaneously, um, will we'll have a, you know, a racial identity and a gender identity and a educational identity and, a you know, a regional identity and a religious mm-hmm. identity, all these sorts of things. Um, and so he has these really mo- remarkable works where he's basically just saying like, okay, here's my, you know, starting from these axioms that like people are in different groups, and that uh, you can be distinguished according to a nominal Nominal um, variables like categories, essentially, and also gradiated variables which are uh, continuous Mm -hmm. numbers. Um, Here are all the very many things that actually flow from that in terms of all sorts of things. So he talks about, you know, the he makes predictions about the likelihood of, you know, intermarriage between different uh, religious or racial groups and sort of he's like, you know, actually that will be dependent on the relative size of the groups and also the number of other, the sort of differentiation on on other categories um, as well. And, uh, and, you know, he can, you just, there's just lots of, it turns out, lots of um, theoretical claims that kind of uh, follow from these basic, very basic uh, observations or assumptions. Um so it's yeah, it's, it's really crazy listening
1: to you explain his work. It sounds like like he's writing in the late 70s or this the mid to late seventies. It sounds like he just completely predicted all the you know acrimonious debate around or like intersectional critiques <laughs> of class analysis yeah. and so forth. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's actually that's really interesting to to go back and uh yes, yeah, see sort of exactly what he but the, he did do this uh or he and some co-authors did these analyses in the nineteen, I think early eighties, where they basically they got um, they ha- got data for different cities and looked at oh like you know how big are the different ethnic groups in the city and how you know what sort of intermarriage rates are there that sort of thing and so they you know they were able to sort of document uh, a fair amount of it em- empirically in addition to to the more sort of logical deduction that that he did in the original in the original work um, yeah so I mean one of the things that that follows from this these theories that Blau developed uh, is you you know essentially what we're seeing here right is that if you have nominal groups that are also sort of placed on a on a gradient variable, right? So you have racial groups that are on that are not perfectly identical in terms of their incomes; they fall on different. They're they're weighted towards different edges of the income distribution. Um, then a consequence of that is that if the if the Income distribution changes, if the if the gradient if there's an increase of stretching along the the gradient variable, then that will in itself be enough to alter the relationship between the two nominal groups um, or, or on average. Right. So, you know, even if there's no uh, additional stratification or sorting, um, if the underlying you know, gradient variable, like the income distribution stretches or compresses, that will that will alter the level of racial inequality, um, at least in terms of median income ratios, which is how I and and other people often measure it. And so that, you know, you don't have to have sort of an explicitly uh, a a process that's operating explicitly through the nominal variable, in this case, like an explicitly racial process to continue or produce or increase uh, racial inequality. Yeah, I mean, I
1: think, oh, go ahead. Oh you you got it. Oh no, that, that's really interesting. I mean I, f- I feel like it that that sociological framework really it really shows, you know, that 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 I, I guess the binary between let's say identity politics versus uh kind of Marxist politics or something like that, it's really a false one, right? That neutral economic processes, something that a Marxist would pay attention to, really works through uh these nominal categories and vice versa, I'll, of course.
2: Yeah, I I think that that's, that's, that's right. Or that's largely right. I mean, I think, because, you know, one, uh, sort of another way of saying this same point is that, you know, in the, unless we were at actually perfect racial, like zero racial stratification, so unless we like literally actually ended racism entirely, then, then we would always still have uh, you won't be able to get to racial equality in terms of incomes unless you do something about the underlying income distribution, um, and so there, you know, this the, these economic justice issues and racial justice issues are just really intertwined, and they really impact each other. And um, yeah, they're we're very in a
3: Philip Randolph territory here.
2: Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I think he recognized this really explicitly, and you know, Martin Luther King also had towards the end of his life really wrote very very clearly about this kind of thing that these are really intersecting uh inter- intersectional processes um <laughs> they need to be attacking both at the same time
3: yeah so on on that note i want to uh read a quote of yours and then then ask uh, a follow-up question so in in your paper you say in addition to essentially negating the last five decades of slow racial progress the skewed income distribution will reduce the benefits of any future relative gains any increase in relative economic rank of blacks compared to whites will translate into a smaller increase in their relative incomes, except to the extent that they're able to penetrate the most elite strata of U.S. society. The uphill climb towards racial parity is now steeper than it was when the Civil Rights Act was passed. Which, when I read that, was just a, kind of like a gut punch, right? Like, uh, even, even at, you know, 50 years after, you know, these sort of like landmark um, achievements, uh, things have only actually gotten harder because of uh, the way that capitalism has maldistributed income in the economy. And I, I guess I wanted to ask, you know, does this does this kind of analysis apply to um, other identity categories? Um, so could you say the same thing about women, for example, that part of the reason we haven't seen um, gender incomes on average uh, compress, the,
2: part of the same uh, Blau process? Um, yeah, I mean, I think broadly speaking, yes, like any sort of, you know, any instances in which there's, there's different um, identity categories or nominal categories that have different locations on the income distribution uh you know any instance of that is going to be affected by this process of the the overall stretching um of the distribution uh so yeah so i'm i with the case of gender inequality it's a it's a little bit harder to sometimes uh identify in the data just because there's also been this process of of changing labor force participation so um more women work Uh, work in the labor market now than than they did in the past and that that means that there's sort of multiple things going on it can be hard to disentangle um, uh, disentangle the the effects of the this exact process alone Um, but yeah but in theory you know this would this sort of thing can be operating in many different contexts
1: cool with that maybe we should move to another cluster of of, of your work Um, this one is around regional processes of economic uh, convergence or divergence. And I guess just to to start, um, what made you get interested in, in uh, regional economies as opposed to looking at a uh, broader national or cross-national
2: um, kind of measures and comparisons? Yeah, um, this actually, my interest in, in regional economic development actually sort of predates my uh, my interest in inequality or economic inequality, at least to some extent. So I I've um I actually before I started studying sociology, I I did a master's degree in urban planning, so focused on focused on economic development. So why are some cities you know more prosperous than others, and you know where do industries locate, and how does that uh shape the lives and and the and the cities that they're that they're they're found in um so this is this is something that i've been um interested in it for for quite a while um uh but it's something that i think it turns out is actually very close to the these same overall process of processes of inequality and and you know economic growth and that sort of thing that happen at the at the national level so um so yeah so in some ways this is uh a merging of, of two, two long-standing interests that I've had um, in terms of, you know, trying to understand how it is that national-level trends, like for instance, rising inequality, impact, uh, impact regional economies. Um, You know, and as we've been just discussing, you know, another example of a nominal variable might be what city do you live in. And, you know, we know for a fact that it's always been the case in the U.S. that some cities on average are are richer than others. And so you would expect that a a similar process of, you know, a stretching of the overall distribution would also change the relative positions of different of different places within it um, to be occurring. Um, And that is, in fact, what what we've seen over the last uh, over the last few decades.
1: Yeah, to just to 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 maybe cash things out a little bit for, for listeners, um, what exactly is an economic region? Um and could you could you give maybe just a, a brief picture of a of I guess economic maybe the major economic regions in the US, or at least the most um maybe exemplary ones to your mind?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's and and this is a term that is pretty Oftentimes used imprecisely, and there's, or maybe not even imprecisely. There's debate about, you know, different people use it in different ways. Um, but uh, the 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 field, uh, uh, the academic field that I think studies studies this sort of these topics the most is actually called regional science. That's a uh, uh, an academic field that still still does exist. It was more, it was, it was I think, more prominent in the you know sixties and seventies probably. Um, but there, basically, the idea is the the is to study. Um, what they call like self-contained economic units, and usually this is something like a metropolitan area. So it's a city surrounded by suburbs that you know all the the people. It sort of contains a, a core city, and then the people, the the counties or or suburbs from which people commute into it. And the idea is that you know this is sort of a a unit that's self-contained and that, you know, all or most of the people who live there also work there and vice versa, the people who work there also live there. And that, that makes them kind of cohesive and and it, it sort of makes sense to analyze them as as individual units in a way that it doesn't really, um, ne- you know, for a lot of purposes, it doesn't necessarily make sense to separate out, you know, uh, Chicago City proper from, you know, the rest of Cook County or or neighboring nor neighboring places um, and and conversely, it, it also doesn't necessarily make sense to include like New York City and Buffalo in the same analysis because they're, they're really far apart from each other and they're pretty different in terms of their economies. Um, and so the the metropolitan areas is for 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 regional scientists and economic geographers is sort of a, a, a useful level of analysis. Um, and when, when they say region, that's what they mean, like a metropolitan region.
1: So obviously, it seems like a great concern um, in the literature that you just mentioned is the fact that in the past few decades, the same, the same scale of time that you're looking at in your previous studies, there's been a huge divergence in terms of the fortunes of uh, different economic regions in the US. Um, so so what, how, how is that divergence usually explained um, in the literature and how, how do you see it?
2: Yeah, so there's been, um, this has been a topic that has gotten, I think, a lot more scholarly attention over the past few years than it had beforehand. Um, Until, uh, yeah, until the last 10 or 15 years ago or so, actually, there was, the academic literature was more focused on the process of convergence, of sort of catching up of, of Mm -hmm. poor areas, both poor countries in the world, and also poor regions within a country. Um, And there were a lot of, you know, under sort of standard neoclassical theory there's a lot of reasons to expect that the natural state will be to sort of have convergence over time as you know if capital sort of flows to the areas where the where it has the highest return and uh conversely um labor moves to the areas that has have the highest wages you should sort of have an evening out process um and that was sort of the the standard theoretical understanding at least within economics not not so much in, in other disciplines necessarily um uh you know certainly until the, the 90s or 2000s. Um, and it also fit the data fairly well until about 1980. So there actually was a process of, of convergence in the United States um, up until 1980 or so. It's hard to say whether that was sort of indefinite before then or if it started in the early 20th century because the data aren't aren't really good enough to tell for sure. Um, uh, but yeah, so there was this, this uh, empirical process of convergence and that was explained through these neoclassical theories about capital mobility and labor mobility. Um, But just as those all that was being sort of developed, it actually turned out that the process stopped happening. And, uh, you know, starting in the 1980s, we started to see the opposite happening, a process of divergence in which, um, you know, places that were already wealthy started growing more quickly in terms of their incomes than places that were less well off. And so we see this pulling away or this bifurcation um, of the country um, on regional on regional lines. Um, And so, yeah, so that's been going on basically for about 40 years at this point. Um, And, you know, there's lots of I'm trying to think of what some of the a lot of a lot of the attempts to explain why you might have divergence going on do come sort of out of people talk a lot about agglomeration economies. And so maybe there's sort of higher returns to a given, you know, higher productivity, higher returns to scale if you have it, people, more people concentrated in in a particular place. Um, And so that might be um, a process that would result in uh, in growing divergence. Um, also, you can imagine there's been work on sort of uh, uh, income sorting or sorting by education. So people um, today live in different parts of the country based on their income levels or education levels to a greater extent than they they did in the past. And you sort of have, uh, you know, migration processes where You know, a lot of people who have high incomes end up moving to places like San Francisco or New York. And and that's not true of people who have lower incomes. And so that's another thing that could be going on or could be could be driving some of this divergence. And then you can imagine that, you know, among, you know, once you have these sort of critical masses of lots of high income people or lots of high, you know, many different um, uh, companies all working in the same uh, high growth industry or something like that, that could then contribute to to further economic growth for those particular regions
3: yeah I mean so I, I went to college um, at a place that only had five thousand people in the whole town in in western rural Minnesota, something like you know half the city was which was college students. Everybody I talked to you know their dream was to go to that college and then move to the big city because uh, that's, yeah, that's no, where all the excitement is, that's where all the people are, that's where the culture is, that's where the jobs are, you mm-hmm. know, even if you weren't attracted by all the big city uh, lights and flare and stuff, is that process of sorting. The desire to move out of rural America into the big city, or from poor areas to richer areas, is that what's driving the divergence of different metro regions in America?
2: So that's a great question, and that's a, a question that I've, you know, is central to this to this particular paper and something that I've I've wondered about a lot. Um, and so, you know, it's definitely the case that this sorting process is going on. So we are seeing sorting by um, by income levels across metro areas, um, but. It turns out or i argue um i think i I show um that uh that this is not actually what's driving the overall uh it's not driving the majority of the overall divergence that we've seen um and so you, you know again you can sort of think about um let's decompose this overall change into two 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 different um uh components one is about changes in where people of different income levels live so you know where do people at the 95th percentile like how many of the how many of them live in New York and how many of them live in rural Minnesota and has that changed over time? Um, and then conversely, there's the other question of, okay, but how much does a person at the 95th percentile make and how much is it compared to somebody who's at the 25th percentile or something and how how has that ratio changed? And so um, it turns out that if you do, you can you can separate these out using a, a simulation process sort of like we talked about before um, and say, let's imagine that you know everybody stayed living a, in the town where they lived in 1980, or really, it's, let's say, you know, imagine that the income ranks uh, assigned to each town stayed the same as they were in 1980. Um, but let's imagine that, uh, you know, overall inequality or the the income earned at each of those ranks has evolved as it did in real life. And then conversely, we can do the opposite. It's like let's imagine that overall inequality stayed as it was in 1980, but people sorted themselves across places just like they did in in reality. Um, what would the amount of divergence look like in those two scenarios? Um, And if you do that, you basically if you run the scenario where you allow for sorting to happen as in reality, but you keep inequality at the lower level from 1980, um, you see that there would be about a quarter as much divergence as there was in real life. So uh, it would have gone up, right? Sorting did happen and it is a real process, um, but it doesn't account for um, that large a share of the overall change. And then conversely, if you do the opposite scenario and you say, uh, let's keep people living where they were in 1980, no sorting happened. Um, but inequality goes up as it did in reality, Um, you would have seen about 54% as much divergence as in real life. So about twice as much as is due to sorting alone. Um, And the remainder of it is, the remainder of the change is a interaction between the two. So it's a, uh, Mm -hmm. a, it results from the combination of, you have people more concentrated at high levels in certain places and their incomes go up. And that's sort of greater than the sum of its parts. Um, Yeah. So on the whole, you know, both of these processes are contributing, but rising inequality overall is a, is a larger contributor to to the divergence that we've seen over the past um, the past few decades.
1: Yeah. So, so the so the major upshot of this of all of this would be um, local economic outcomes uh, that cause regions to diverge is really a function of inequality, which is a, which is a function of national or federal uh, kind of policy or institutions.
2: Yeah, I think that's really well well said. Right. It's like there some people have this view that like you know the local economic conditions are. Are, are a result of local actions or a result of sort of, you know, local forces. And, uh, you know, those are certainly contributors. But, but what this paper shows and what I think is really the case is that, you know, c- cities and regions are very much located in a global economy and things that happen at the global scale or national policy changes will have really profound impacts on the economies of specific places. And they might be very, the same action can have very different impacts in, in one place from another based on, you know, who's living there and what their economy is based on. So,
3: you can have like virtuous entrepreneurs, you know, shooting out your butt. But the fact is that there's like a kind of musical chairs type thing going on at the national level where there's just fewer and fewer options to have the one percent, uh, in your city or whatever. And that's that's causing regional inequality, right? Yeah, it's, I
2: it's, think it's, that it's that's
3: structural, true. not not mm-hmm. not not characterological.
2: That's that's my view. I mean, I and it's you know, it's there's both things are are true, right? It's like it is the case that if you have like a really a extremely effective local leader, it may be possible for this particular city to to move up in in rank terms and also to sort of keep its economy alive or even grow and prosper. You know, for instance, Minneapolis Saint Paul, which is uh you know the biggest city to where I grew up in in Rochester, Minnesota, has done really well over the past um, the past few decades, um, even though. On, you know, on the whole, the the number of cities that are sort of in that top category has has shrunk, or it's been harder to it's been harder to have a a, a, a prosperous city. Um, and so you know, this is this is if you're interested in the in the question of like, I'm a particular city leader, and I want to know what can be done um, about my particular place. There's sort of one set of policy things that you would think about and one set of things you control. But if you're at the national level, you're saying I'm troubled by the amount of inequality we're seeing between regions of the country, then I think you basically, you have to think macro scale and you have to think about structure and sort of, you know, how is it, how do you make it the case that more, not just that any one particular city can succeed, but that more, more cities on the whole or a greater number of cities can do well.
1: Yeah, let's, so, so there are some definite kind of public policy implications that flow from um, the empirical uh, discoveries that you make in this paper. And I guess maybe we can start with um, the 2019 paper on uh, specifically on uh, antitrust as a possible form of federal policy that might alleviate some of these regional economic uh, discrepancies that we're seeing. Um, So Robert, how how did you land on um, antitrust as the sort of field, uh, policy field um, for the, some of the implications that you're talking about, regional divergence and so forth.
3: It's very prairie populist.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, I mean, it, and that's not totally um, unrelated. So I, I really came to it, you know, antitrust starting a couple of years ago um, and and certainly now there's been sort of a revival of the antitrust movement that you know very much harkens back to prairie populism or some of the you know processes in the late 19th early 20th century um, reviving some of those traditions about being sort of skeptical of bigness and breaking up companies and that sort of thing um, and so I actually came to this particular idea of looking at the regional implications um, based on an article that uh, Philip Longman wrote in the Mon- uh, Washington Monthly um, Uh, back in 2015 where that was basically arguing that you know we would expect that uh, um, antitrust enforcement actually should have some amount of regional um, consequences because you know just sort of in the like very basic geometry of you know you used to have 10 companies that each had 10 different headquarters in 10 different cities um, and then they all combine into two companies and you're left with you know one company headquartered in new york and one company headquartered in chicago um that's a pretty big Uh, change in the geographic distribution of of at least corporate headquarters and presumably those have you know lots of high-paying you know jobs for lawyers and accountants and uh, executives that sort of thing and maybe uh, maybe also you know local business leaders are often important uh, you could call them I guess pieces of civic infrastructure right in terms of uh, you know donating to local charities or um, you know being invested in the success of the town in a way that a a, a large company based elsewhere might not be sort of uh, as viscerally in, invested in um and so you know one of the things that happens when companies start merging is that you get both you get more overall inequality which as we've just been talking about will have a regional aspect to it um, but then also you may change the geographic profile of different places uh, uh, yeah uh, the geographic profile of different industries um, and this is something that uh, others have 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 looked at uh, looked at as well so um uh, josh pachevit who's a professor of sociology at Brown University, did a really interesting ethnography of sort of what happens to the local politics of cities after consolidation. And so, you know, after the factories are bought up um, by uh, absentee owners, um, what he found is he was studying these two towns in Iowa and basically showed that, you know, it used to be that local politics were about the workers fighting the factory owners, and you know, over who got to be mayor or something like that. Um, but then, when the factory owners, you know, sell out or, or are put out of business, um, suddenly that's that's not the main venue of politics. Um, and he argues that as a result, because you're not sort of fighting over economic, local economic stakes, that um, that that actually contributes to the sort of uh, rise of like culture wars and economic or the political polarization and that sort of thing. I think that this case of antitrust is sort of one example of a, of a broader pattern, which is that, you know, federal policies that maybe seem like they don't have a spatial component to them actually do and actually have the effect of advantaging certain places and disadvantaging mm-hmm. others and maybe even contributing to this pulling apart. Um, and so, you know, I think antitrust is one example of that, but it's hardly the only one. So there's been really interesting work looking at, you know, just like pure regulation, like regulation of transportation industries or communications or that sort of thing. And, you know, how changes in, in federal regulation that don't really seem to have a, have a particular geographic bent to them actually, you know, have the effect of concentrating activity in certain places by sort of Promoting, um, you know, in the case of like air travel, promoting the like the hub and spoke model, which really advantages hubs and disadvantages places that don't have hubs and that sort of thing. And so, so yeah, so I think this is, you know, I, I think antitrust does contribute to overall level of levels of inequality, but it's not very much, not the only thing going on. Um, but it's sort of one example of a a federal policy that has a has a geographic angle to it that might not be apparent at first.
1: Would it be fair to view sort of antitrust as a subset of Maybe national policy decisions around regulation or deregulation—that um, since you know the the Reagan Revolution or since the, the sort of beginnings, I guess, of regional divergence have have really affected um, the income distribution in in the U.S. Perhaps, and I, I guess this is kind of bleeding into the the the, the other uh, paper that you've written, you've given us, but um, antitrust would kind of go alongside. Uh, other sort of federal policies like uh, regulation, like even state and municipal finance reform that are potential solutions for what you call kind of place conscious uh, sort of national policies designed around uh, fostering regional convergence.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think anti, yeah, exactly. Antitrust is sort of one example, but it's hardly the only one. Um, and to me, I think the big the big shift that i hope we can have is from thinking of of geographic inequality as sort of uh an independent area that may or may not be of policy concern to people but sort of has is is a spatial process that requires spatial solutions so you know a lot of people talk about like place-based policies of you know we're going to have a tax break if you invest in this particular area that we've identified as high need or something like that um and those have a you know those those have a place, so to speak, um, uh, in the in the policy um, portfolio. But I think what I'm hoping we can do is sort of start thinking about geographic implications as sort of one criteria that we we consider when we're evaluating mm. all sorts of policies. So, you know, when we're thinking about antitrust, like there's a bunch of different reasons why people want stronger antitrust enforcement, but one. Possible one maybe should be well. Let's think about what the geographic implications are. Or same thing when you're doing you know transportation regulation or doing you know telecommunications or that sort of stuff. You know, when Robert doing wants things, to
3: uh, regulate the the railroads again.
2: Yeah, for no, me. for real. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of these things that don't that don't seem like they necessarily have a spatial component to them actually really do, and we should be thinking about that when we're when we're deciding it.
3: So how would this so the other major, uh, I guess, place-based um, policy that comes to mind is Saving the Heartland by Larry Summers at all, which essentially argues, or or, or, some, or somebody like I don't know Matt Iglesias, who who wants to like relocate the Department of Transportation in Wyoming or something like that, just send the whole bureaucracy into the hinterland um, to like send better jobs there. So how do these um, policies relate to your vision of what's been going on in the last forty years and how to solve it? Because if you know if the problem isn't Geographical sorting of people, but the rise of national income inequality, then the solution is to just, you know, chop off the one percent wherever they happen to be. And that'll flatten the distribution and that by itself will solve regional inequality. Right.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think that these are, you know, th- there's room for lots of different possible approaches. Um, and, you know, I, as we've talked about, like, you know, something like uh, relocating the Department of Transportation could would have sort of an effect of undoing some of the sorting, perhaps depending on where you put it. Um, but but yeah so my my general uh i guess expectation would be that basically like considering the magnitude of the divergence that we've seen um the idea of sort of undoing that through either targeted investment of programs or like relocating agencies or or even like you know non-governmental industries if you could do that um that there would, you'd have to have a lot of that going on to just even start to make a dent um and so i'm i'm skeptical uh that it will be possible to make sort of what they call like place-based programs of that the the requisite size to to undo the the growth in in, in spatial inequality that we've seen um, and so i'm hoping that we can complement that with what i you know i call like place conscious policies of saying well let's actually you know let's think about ge- geography when we're designing our trade policy or let's think about geography when we're when we're we're regulating airlines or figuring out what to do about big tech or something like that um, and you know, I think it's very possible to to structure our markets in ways that promote, you know, um, make it more attractive for for companies to locate in the heartland or for um make it easier for for places that have been left behind to to start catching up. One challenge that spatially targeted programs have faced is that you know it's very clear that like a few people in one particular spot are getting the investment, and everybody else is not. And so that makes them has made them in the past sort of politically, challenging to to sustain just because you know you're zero not, sum. Yeah, there's zero sum. There's not a very broad coalition that's really invested in them. Um whereas so I think what we should be definitely looking for is opportunities to to again sort of have a have a spatial um angle on On policies that maybe already have coalitions or where it's possible to build a coalition around them. So, you know, you think about something, you know, certainly like the antitrust movement right now seems to have a lot of momentum around it. That's not necessarily coming from people who are concerned explicitly about spatial inequality, but it would have the effect of potentially of of reducing it Um, or similarly something like, you know, like the Green New Deal, right. Uh, That's primarily about the climate crisis and about creating jobs, but it would have a very, you know, depending on how you structure it, it could have a very positive um, impact on regional inequality, because you would be potentially, you know, driving huge investments in places that have have seen a lack of investment um, historically. And so I think, you know, thinking about ways to incorporate geography and incorporate, uh, address spatial inequality through policies that have that effect alongside other effects, and maybe have um, either existing coalitions or the potential for coalition formation um, with with broader subsets of the of the populace, I think is is worth doing. Well,
0: in America has this weird political geography, right? Where even places that have uh, like flatlining population or or even population decline, uh, they still get two senators. Which means that if they care about regional economic divergence, which they likely do, if if they're states or metro regions that are left behind, uh, it should be easy to create political ferment around this concept of regional inequality and then you can leverage the fact that these places punch above their weight
2: yeah i mean there should be enormous political incentives to addressing this particular problem because the the representation is distributed you know so disproportionately to places that that have uh struggling economies all
3: right uh well thanks for thanks for talking to us about this today yeah, it, was, thanks it, was, for... it
2: was it was a it was
3: a real joy to read uh, read your writing there were some yeah really great passages that i, I was inspired by so uh, we'll awesome. put all of those uh, links in the show notes, and uh, we'll we'll tweet some of the graphs for <laughs> people who are interested. Um, there's some really cool visual evidence that Robert's got going on. All right. Uh, all right. Until next time. Yeah. Thanks so
2: much.
0: Reviving Growth Keynesianism is produced by me, Nick Johnson, with assistance from researchers Jackson Overpeck, Sophie Stuckenberg, and Rohan Venkat. The podcast is supported financially by the University of Chicago Program for Professional Advancement and Training for Humanists and Humanistic Social Scientists, the Micro-Metcalf Internship Program, as well as the University of Michigan UROP Program. If you enjoyed this discussion, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts and consider leaving us a positive review which will help us connect with more engaged listeners like you. More information on our ideas can be found at reviveandgrowthkeynesianism.org. There you can also find our Patreon. We would greatly appreciate if you chose to support us. All donations allow us to put out more content for thoughtful listeners like you. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.